This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Isaac DeVries, your host for today's episode. Today I'm speaking with Juliet Mitchell about her recent essay, Louise Bourgeois and Sigmund Freud, Passage Dangereux, The Girl in Psychoanalysis and Art. Her essay was published in 2021 by Yale University Press in a beautiful book to accompany the exhibition of Louise Bourgeois sculptures and installations here in New York City at the Jewish Museum. Both the exhibit and this book share the same name, which is Louise Bourgeois, Freud's daughter. My distinguished guest is Juliet Mitchell, who is a fellow of the British Academy, professor emeritus at the University of Cambridge, research professor emeritus at University College London, and emeritus fellow at Jesus College, uh, Cambridge. Am I saying that? Is it Jesus College? Yeah, yeah. Is that right? After and alongside a career as a lecturer in English literature, she trained as a psychoanalyst and became a member of the British and International Psychoanalytical Societies. Before training, her introduction of psychoanalysis to emergent feminism culminated in Psychoanalysis in Feminism, which was published in 1974, uh, which argued that Freud's work described the unconscious embedment of patriarchy in our sexuality. Juliet Mitchell, uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, our new books uh, on New Books in Psychoanalysis, we always start with the same question, and then our conversation unfolds over the remaining fifty minutes. And that first question is: to the extent that one can know their motivations, what motivated your writing this essay? I had done quite a lot of reading. Uh, living in uh, Louise Bourgeois' house in in Manhattan. I read in the archives a a lot of her work and just found that though um, her book by Mignon, a book by Mignon Nixon had uh, talked about how psychoanalysis could help us understand Louise Bourgeois and what Louise Bourgeois then contributed to psychoanalysis was indeed the aggression of, of women. I actually found that that was marvellous. I totally agreed with her and, and it's terribly important. But I wanted to go further and look at sexuality along with aggression. So in other words, what would subsequently have been called in Freud's work, the life drive and the death drive, um, or in, in Louise's work, use of male hysteria and female hysteria, and also her relationship with siblings, uh, which I was working on very full time. So I learned, I've learned an enormous amount, not only from her writings, which have more and more been revealed, uh, which Philip Smith is, is working with, uh, but from her sculptures by just looking at what she was doing with her art to help psychoanalysis look at something differently about a girl's Oedipus complex and a girl's sexuality. Was it, did you say that you were living in her home? When I, staying, yes. There's a wonderful flat at the top of her house where you can stay if you're working on the archives and they are very generous to you. And so, yes, I stayed in her. So it meant that I could walk around 
through her bedroom where she lived among her books, um, her kitchen, which was just not really a kitchen, it was a little galley where she wrote and painted on the walls wherever she was. Yes, um, marvellous experience to live there. But only, I didn't live there, I stayed there. And this was after she had passed? Oh, yes, 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 yes. What was it like? It's a, it's a brownstone in a, a very nice brownstone. Well, there's two now because they've got one which is uh, which they open to the public, and one which is her, her private house kept as her house. Um, it's, it's a very so it makes a big brownstone with uh, a terrace off the back and straight onto the street at the front. I heard that she had gutted the kitchen right afterwards, and that that was somehow uh, symbolic of. Uh, her her rage against the domestication of women. Her kitchen, uh, I think. What it, 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 there's nothing there. She just uses a one one ring to to cook herself enough food, um, and it's really what she did in reversing her experience of being trapped as a housewife in those pe- early paintings of of, um, of a woman in a in an actual house with arms and legs coming out of the house. And she said afterwards later that she said. She wanted to make the house look after her rather than her look after the house. And that's exactly what it does. The house is part of her, her work. It's incredible. I've seen the pictures. I haven't been yet. I, and um, it's, it just seems like the, the space had become um, an expression of her internal world. And... Is that what you found? external world. I think the, the one was the other in a sense because she had those um, wonderful open houses for people to come and talk to her on a Sunday and she just sat in a very modest way behind a, a, a small table and people could mill around and talk and ask her questions and things. So I think it, her external and internal life wouldn't really have been separated in that sense. It helped, she, she lived her art and her art lived her. Um. Yeah, I think I've seen, actually, there's some videos on YouTube that one can uh, pull up and watch her interacting on these Sunday salons. Um, I'm not sure if they were part of the, I can't remember if they were part of the uh, the Spider, the Mistress, and the Tangerine film, or if they were separate um, separate film footage. But but in any event, there there's some of them on YouTube. I don't, have you seen those, by the way? I, I tend more to go for people's, Recollection. So I, uh, Mignon Nixon, for example, met with her and did her book totally in conversation, from conversations with her and from her own research, her own scholastic research as well. So I, I don't do much with YouTube and things. I just like to read books and see and talk to people. So speaking of the texts and books, um, what's the story of these texts that were discovered? I, I think they were in 2003. Is that correct? When the first set of texts were found? Um, I can't remember the exact dates. Uh, Jerry Gorovoy, who's more than her assistant, her, her companion, her friend, and with whom she, on whom she was t- totally dependent in an, in an egalitarian way, but using him to, using him, Wonderfully. Can you still hear me? Because my screen's yeah. gone blank. Oh, good. That's fine. Yeah. No, my, my screen's gone blank, but that, that's okay. I hear you wonderfully. Good, good. Okay. Well, he came at 10 o'clock every day, six days a week, and uh, that was so important to her. And he is a part of a lot of her works, uh, like the very beautiful um, ones on Hysteria, the Arch of Hysteria in, in bronze and the hands, which have got all the things of hands, they're his hands and, and her hands. And the, uh, he's just terribly important. I've forgotten now what your question was at that point. Sorry, because my screen went blank and I, I went blank for a moment. Um, no problem. Well, I was asking about the texts. The, uh, I mean, the, the uh, yes, exhibit. They were, they, they, were, they were sorting all the texts. So there was these, this whole wall of um, sort, sorting that, that uh, Maggie, the person who was doing it, a lot of the work had produced, and I read as much as they'd got. Um, and then at a certain point, uh, Jerry found a whole lot more uh, uh, loose, loose sheet, write, loose, loose page writing. And Philip, uh, who we had hoped to be with us on this conversation, he has he, he is still working, producing um, books of her writing now, seeing her as a writer. Um, I just used her writings. I haven't seen her as a writer. I just wanted to, I learned from what she wrote about 
Um, she was one of the first people I, I've ever encountered who um, wrote about siblings, which is what I was writing about. I mean, to, in the in the field, I think perhaps I'm going to take a, a sort of cut there and say something slightly different, which I think is more important than what I'm beginning to talk about. Though we can talk okay. about it again later. I think the most important thing is that she had these decades of psychoanalysis until her analyst's death in eighty-five. Uh, from 52 to 85, but certainly intensively from 52 till 60, 66 about. But after that, after um, his death, I think by then she had was so, she'd known so much. She read enormously in psychoanalysis. She wanted at one point to become a child, a child analyst and thought about it very seriously, but didn't go that way. I think that the art was by then becoming very successful and she was very embedded in it. Um, but I think that I, I learned so much from what she understood and from what she was using for her art from psychoanalysis and giving to psychoanalysis from her art. And what we need to say about that first and foremost is it's a clinical knowledge. She worked so hard at her very, very lengthy, in fact, uh, adult lifelong, in a sense, from the age of 40 till, till her death. I think she worked clinically, um, both with with um, her analyst, but then uh, later on her, what we'd call a self-analysis, which you can only do if you're if you're really deeply, deeply trained in psychoanalysis, you then, then can go on working in self-analysis yourself. And what she knew always was this big, massive change in herself, which is the only change that really can happen with psychoanalysis, which is instead of always bringing other people into the situation, your father, your mother who did this, or your you know your siblings who did this, or whoever it is that did this, it's you that matter. It's what your contribution is. So you have to look at everything as what you contribute to the situation. And once she managed to get there with her analyst, which was terrifically hard work because she just didn't want to look at herself. She wanted to look at what her father did, what her mother did, what everybody else did, but she want, didn't want to look at what she did. And it's only when you can look at what you do yourself that then you can carry on and learn about uh, possibly to do self-analysis if you are, you've had a, a 30 years of analysis as she had. And it's absolutely her clinical embedment that I would emphasize. So her, like when you were looking at the, at the text, it's the clinical aspect of her writings that stick out to you? Those are her writings in a sense. I mean, she read enormously, but the, the reading that she did, I mean, she, she read everybody we all have to read, basically. I mean, her, li- her library is extraordinary. You should look at it. It's fascinating. And, I know, and you can see she's marked things up and she's noted very embedded in the reading. But that fed into her clinical experience. Um, I'm wondering uh, what Luis, the person, uh, and through these writings, uh, how did she speak to you as a woman and as an analyst? I wish I'd met her. I very nearly did meet her. I was just about to, to meet her when she, she died, in fact. So that's a great disappointment and always will be a disappointment. But um, she, she, she formulated things that I was getting to in my own work, which, of course, as I'm a trained psychoanalyst, after writing Psychoanalysis and Feminism, I trained as an analyst and practiced psychoanalysis full time for 25 years and then went back into academic work at Cambridge. Because um, I'd gone into it because I wanted to see where all the ideas came from, which indeed you do um, when you work clinically. And then I, after 25 years, I thought I needed to actually also look at it more academically as well. So I went in to teach it. To teach it. Um, and many other things happened in the meantime too. Uh, most o- obviously, my uh, contribution to the rise of second wave feminism and my setting up a gender centre in Cambridge University, uh, which is flourishing still. Um, so, a lot of what I was interested in, she was already interested in. So, she was there before me. And so, when I w- went to what she understood, it was fantastic. It was like confirmation from somebody who'd not only been there, had that thought, had thought it in her own way with her own context, which of course was an art context, which mine wasn't. I've done a fair bit of writing on on art since, but uh, at that time, I wasn't, and I'm I'm still not an art historian or an artist. 
So she did it through her art. And I think that I mentioned this slightly in my essay that really what's absolutely for me unique about that is that she uses, in a sense, a technique of psychoanalysis, which is the only the only requirement of psychoanalysis is that we should free associate with without let or hindrance, that we should say what comes into our head in order that we, that we can get at, at what would otherwise be censored, unconscious thoughts. And I think she used that for her art. So that, for example, if you're looking at one of her art objects, what she wants you to do is to free associate to it. So it's what you do in response to that art object. And so what I was doing in looking at her was in a sense just doing what she asked of us, which was free associating to it and thinking, okay, I had understood that about the female Oedipus complex, which is a major uh, thing that she looked at, or having a brother, which is another major thing she looked at. And I found in her, or hysteria, which is another thing she looked at, I found ideas I was that I was getting into were already there in her, but through art, which I didn't know. And so I had to learn her art from scratch from the beginning. I didn't know who she was when I was first asked to speak about her. So, yeah, I had a question about this because in there, your essay, you you write quite uh, personally and movingly about how to interact with her art through this associative practice. And when I was thinking about this, it brought I was I was also reading Freud's essay, uh, The Unconscious, at the same time. And it's there where he makes this startling assertion that unconscious speaks to unconscious, whether um, either party knows about it at all or not, right? And um, I consider myself um, in the tradition of modern analysis uh, coming out of Hyman Spotnitz and Phyllis Meadow. And there's a, a heavy emphasis there on induction on psychic induction in the transference and counter-transference, where unconscious speaks to unconscious. And I, I was really curious about this process that you discovered with Louis Bourgeois. And y- you seem to suggest that this is the way that she wanted us to, or she encouraged people to engage with her art, the way to understand her art. Um, and it sounds like it's the way that you came to experience and understand her art. I was wondering if you could take us a little bit further into that and describe what the process is like. Is it different than what one does in analysis? Is it the same? Well, in a sense, you've hit on the question that I was asking myself in that essay. I think when I'm writing something, something always new comes up to me. And that was the new thing that came up to me for that essay. Because what I was really asking was, is she asking us to free associate to her art? Which does So she's not asking us to tell her, for her to tell us what she means. She's wanting to see if we can free associate to what she has produced. They're her associations, which should elicit our associations. And my question was, Is that the same that we then look at the art? The art invites us, the art itself invites us to free associate. Is that a possibility? And that was really a question to myself, which I've asked in that essay. And I tried, yes, a personal instance, I tried it with with the couples because I knew something about where they were in the church. If uh, for our listeners, it was couple one that you... Well, right. there, were, there were more than the. There was, there was couple one that was uh, on display. First of all, uh, in the, where I live in Cambridge in England, there's a lovely place called Kettle's Yard, which I adore as an as a as an art house and an art exhibition space. But it was a cottage where um, you could you could always go and sit and just look at all the art and all the art books and things. It's always been a beautiful place to be, and they had an exhibition in which uh, of her work. Uh, and that was there, and I was looking at it there. And then I saw it again uh, up in Edinburgh in Scotland, um, in both cases with two different friends. And I was I was actually hearing their observations of what we were looking at. Uh, they're two very different friends. And then thinking, well, I'll try, try it for myself, because the church where it was hung originally was one just beside where... I actually nursed on Friday nights, Saturday nights, and Sunday nights when being in, uh, being a graduate in English literature, 
I had to get clinical experience before they would accept me for training as a psychoanalyst. And I would write off to them saying, well, if I did this and I cite something like, you know, could I be a student counsellor? And they'd write back saying, we'll ask at our next meeting in three months' time. And then I woke up one morning and thought, oh, wait a minute, they're asking me to do something I've never done before. And I thought, well, what have I never done before? And I thought, well, even as a little girl, I never wanted to be a nurse. So I wrote back and said, if I became a nurse, would that count as clinical experience? And they didn't wait for any meetings. They just wrote back and said, yes. Uh, So then I got just an ordinary nursing job wearing black tights and black lace-up shoes and a little white cap and a black belt and a white coat and was just an ordinary nurse. But I could only afford that because I had to pay for my analysis as a trainee analysis. Uh, I had to pay for that at the same time. So I could only afford to do that nights on uh, weekends. And the church was next door. And I was in... um, uh, I can't remember what they called it now, but a psychiatric ward in this hos- ordinary uh, public health hospital. And I could sometimes take some of the patients out for walks. And one of the places we used to walk was this uh, church and graveyard next door to the hospital. And that's where her, her sculpture had been. So it was through the associative process to the sculpture that yeah. you, that you well, actually... I, I used that to test myself. Uh-huh. I, I think, is she asking us to free associate ourselves to the sculpture to join her free association to it in producing it which is part of her artwork and therefore can art do something comparable to something clinical and that was my question to myself and so I, I did it as a test on myself to see if I I could free associate to it because I had lots of associations to it many more than I put into the, to the book I think incidentally it's why you get so much humor in her work because you know, once you start really free associating, something very funny comes up, you, you just start laughing um, or crying, you know, all sorts of emotions come up. It's about emotions, I think, in in the response. And of course, I don't know in your training, but in, in my, 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 not just my training, in my practice, um, I, I find that, that the fact that we if we make interpretations and these aren't felt emotionally, they're completely have no impact at all. It's only when we emotionally experience what has been told to us interpret with in language, it's only then that they have meaning for us. And of course, emotions are not the same as the unconscious of language. So I think that she's contributing something. This is something now that I'm working on and thinking it's not in the essay, but I think she was also working very much in working, uh, being so interested in herself as a girl, she was also working in with, with herself as just just having these associations to her own work. Um, I want to move us along because of time, but uh, I, I'm wondering in uh, in. Can reference- I ask you what time we stop, just to, so that I know when I'm we're, we're coming to an end? Yeah. Uh, Traditionally, the let's see. I think we're at eleven forty, so I think we've got about th- uh, thirty more minutes. But uh, I'm frankly, I'm hoping we go a little Winnicott and go overtime. Uh, if you don't have some place to go, I do unfortunately have some place to go. I mean, we can do it again at some point if you'd like. It at some point, <laughs> I'd love that. Um, but so uh, one of the exhibits in. Uh, that was up here at the Jewish Museum and also a central piece of your uh, essay has to do with her installation or her sculpture, The Dangerous Passage. Yes. And you seem to suggest that there's a, there's something going on here that uh, not only challenges but transforms psychoanalysis. Um, I'm wondering if you could um, talk more about how you see her uh, challenging and transforming psychoanalysis. Uh, what do you have in mind? Oh, she, lots of things in which she's, she's really saying something quite new. Um, for example, one, if one works in the field of hysteria, one can't help being struck by how male hysteria keeps appearing, um, you know, from from all through history, it's, it's appeared and always disappears. And she, it was Louise who put her finger on it for me, um, I mean, I noticed it and been interested and thought about it, but um, why is it it keeps disappearing? And basically, she says, well, for men, it's what we would call, well, for women, 
it's egodystonic. We can't make a, what 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 the hysterical woman wants is it to be all about herself and for, or her to, herself to always get what she wants, which is then never quite what she does want. But for men, it's not egodystonic; it's egosyntonic. In other words. Men are always talking just about themselves. All men want is about themselves all the time. And if they don't want get what they want, even if it turns out to be not what they want, but if they don't get what they want all the time, then they make a hysterical scene. And so it's, it's dystonic for women and syntonic for men. And to me, that was a brilliant way of, <laughs> and a quite, quite, again, quite funny and humorous way of perceiving it, that, you know, that her, her husband, when he was still alive in her marriage, um, if he or her sons didn't get full attention, then there was a scene about it. If she did made a scene about getting full attention, which she did, uh, then everybody saw her as disturbed and hysterical. Right. So it was a personal experience of hers that she just eventually was able to put very humorously. Um, I could give you other instances. Uh, now, now they're not coming to me, but they'll come to me in a moment. But that that was a very there are many places. Oh yes, when I first got interested in in siblings, and actually that was before I uh, read or before I watched and read and looked at at her. Uh, so I was already written about it, uh, as I had about hysteria. But she summed it summed it up so 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 well. Um, in terms of what turned out to be a tragic situation of her own younger younger brother and her own terror that, she, that he, he, he became effectively schizophrenic and uh, she was terrified that she would be, as she saw it, sort of crazy too and she had lots of dreams and lots of thing, feeling about it. And the important, and, but what she said that was sort of new for psychoanalysis and what I've since read, just written another book, just finished now, another book on, is... Um, that psychoanalysis doesn't look at sibling relations, it only looks at parental child relationships. And, you know, I've just finished a book which uh, uh, my psychoanalysis and feminism was about patriarchy. The book I've just finished is about fratriarchy, um, it's about siblings. Did and you want to say more? Well, it's the dominance of men again within the fratriarchy, of course, but that's not what the whole book's about. The whole book is looking at what I call the horizontal axis um, of, of, of psychosocial relations which lead on to marriage, friendship, war, enemies, etc. Um, and that's where, for example, we really find violence against women. I was talking about violence against women just two nights ago in, in Zooming Peru. Well, I was supposed to be in Peru. I was supposed to be in Lima. And to my great disappointment, I had to Zoom it. Um, but talking about that, and she, she had got there to the importance of, of lateral relations on a horizontal axis. She'd got there. And, and so I was able to use her work again. So, you know, so much, she got, she got somewhere, she just got there by, by the, she worked so hard with, she said, as I say in my essay, uh, why don't people see that my tenacity is a good thing, tenaciousness is good, and, and that's identical to what Freud said about himself, that he was a conquistador, whose main characteristic was the tenacity with which he worked at something. And, you know, they both of them were capable of, changing their minds because that's what you do if you look at something. It seems something at the beginning and then it begins to look like something different and then it looks like something else again. Then you go back to what it was at the beginning and you just keep on. You don't stop. And, and she shared that characteristic with, with Freud that they were both extremely tenacious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up. Like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, I picked up on that in your essay and I picked up from her writings and also the the video footage that I've seen of her and certainly the, the way that she went about her analysis um, as well. Uh, tenacity uh, for her was um, an expression of her aggression, which unlocked her sexuality, it unlocked her art, it unlocked and made possible her analysis. I mean, it was, she, she does come across as one of the most tenacious people, although I didn't meet her that I've, that I've encountered. Um, And I think some of this tenacity comes out in, in the actual uh, installation and sculpture, the dangerous passage. Um, and I was wondering if you would be willing to talk about what she does there with the Oedipus complex. You seem to suggest in your essay that she, she really gives us the girl, the sexual girl, um, in a way that other authors, other clinicians, other theorists, Freud himself, they didn't get. And I see this, you know, in your essay, uh, it seems to be one of Louise Bourgeois' crowning like achievements, her, uh, her uh, contributions to psychoanalysis, but also one of the moments in which she changes and transforms it. Uh, would you speak on what she does with the Oedipal complex? Yes, you see, again, it's something that having been interested and written about it and thought about it, I gained found in her, if you see what I mean. It was, it was terrific. Um, and it is what I think uh, made for what other people would call a cure. People didn't think she was cured, cured because she smashed, she destroyed her work quite often, smashed things on the ground and had temper tantrums. And you asked me about that actually in, in an email to me at one point. And um, first of all, I'd recommend anybody to read your Nixon's book on the importance of female aggression. And I would say that, as I was just mentioning this talk I gave about violence against women a couple of nights ago, I actually said that I think that the fact that women have to not be aggressive is as much part of the oppression against women as the fact that there's huge violence against them. Of course, the violence against them kills them, and so it's more serious, whereas not being aggressive doesn't kill anybody. And and when you were saying that, I think you said that you know, anybody, everybody always thinks she's just appallingly aggressive. In fact, I once, one of the most scary things I did, I stood at a, up at a huge celebration in in New York in the most wonderful dinner overlook on the, onto the Hudson, and... Her eldest son had spoken about how difficult it was she was as a mother and how aggressive she was. And I got up and spoke about actually she, about her aggression and that it was perfectly legitimate. And I liked to, I was so nervous doing that. Nobody spoke to me afterwards. So well, one person did afterwards. That's not true. But um, anyway, aggression is incredibly important for women because without being able to be destructive, how could you ever do it, be an artist? So if people say, why aren't women great artists? Well, A, they are great artists, but B, they also might be very inhibited from being great artists because as women, we're not supposed to be aggressive. And of course you have to be aggressive because you have to destroy while you create. It's part of creation is to destroy. And I just ask you one question in a sense. You say that she makes other people like Pollock, etc. No, it wasn't Pollock. Who was the aggression you spent? Anyway, some of the people you thought were very. Oh, yeah. I, I said her. Um, uh, yes, I. Um, let's see. Lucian I actually. Freud, I, wasn't it? One of them was Lucian Freud, who made me cry in public, which is only I've only done twice in my life. He was so. I found him so vicious. Uh, she's not vicious. She smashed objects. You cannot imagine Louise smashing a person. She might have, she, I mean, she just desperately needed uh, Jerry Gorovoy, and thank goodness for both of, or for her, certainly, that, that he was so wonderfully there for her. 
but you, you can't imagine him her just attacking him physically or anything like that. Mm-hmm. However desperate she got, she threw things on the she threw her work on the floor. She broke her work in order to remake it. It's a different sort of aggression. That, that's the sort of aggression that I think we need as women to bring into the world. That sort of aggression that's that's creative. And I think she, her aggression was creative. Right. I mentioned. Yeah, I had I had read Mignon's uh, her essay. Uh-huh. Yeah. On on rage and aggression in uh, Philip's book Return of the Repressed, which yeah. also has your essay, I think, or at least an essay that you have on her sublime jealousy, which is oh, yes. where, where I think some of this work on siblings was uh, mm-hmm. in the background. Definitely, and, yes. Anyway, um, I love the essay by Bimignon, and what I had. Uh, said to you was something that I actually got from my my supervisor and our editor-in-chief here at New Books and Psychoanalysis, which was that, um, you know, nobody wants to touch her rage, her aggression. Um, and she described it as volcanic rage and aggression. Uh, that's how she described her unconscious. And I said, you know, it doesn't seem like it's been adequately attended to in the literature. And I asked, um, or I said, I think she makes Francis Bacon seem like Calder, which, which actually <laughs> is a comment that I had gotten from Tracy. But yeah, I had a patient who, I had a number of patients who went and saw the exhibit. And uh, one of them came back and he's, he's this guy who, all he wants is like a Kantian sublime experience. He, he wants to be able to sit in front of, the, uh, of a piece of art and just kind of take it in and have this glowing, you know, uh, oceanic experience. And he came back to session after seeing the, the exhibit over the weekend, which had the destruction of the father and the dangerous passage, as well as a number of her other sculptures on display. And he hated it. He could not sit there. He could not take it in. He could not. Um, it, he couldn't be with her work. It made him physically uncomfortable, and it had to do with her aggression. It had to do with her rage. And I wondered if you wanted to say anything more about the role, the necessity, the necessity of aggression, the necessity of rage, uh, not only in analysis for everyone, uh, but but also for women. I know that you were just speaking in about it a bit, but I wondered if you wanted to say more about the importance of aggression, um, what role it has to play, what role you see it playing now in people's individual lives, but also more broadly for the women's movement. Oh, I think Greta Thunberg is my heroine in this at the moment because I'm very, very, I'm very involved in, in one small personal way in the horror of the climate situation. And I think when she was at the co-op meetings that we've just had in Glasgow, Greta's, she's very, very brilliant, autistic she may be, but she's extraordinarily clever, really, really clever, interesting, intelligent woman, young woman, very young woman. And she she was asked about this and she said, look, I'm afraid we're right to be angry. We've got to be angry. We mustn't hurt anybody, but we've got to be angry. This is something to be angry about. And the fact that people are just going blah, 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 talking there, and half the time actually they're telling, not telling the truth and all the rest of it, not that she said that, but I think that, uh, that when there are things that one should be angry about, one should be angry. It's as simple as that. And your, uh, your, your, it's a patient you said, I think it was, is it a patient who hated it so much? Yes, anyway, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, when I was first asked to to speak at uh, occasion or on Louise Bourgeois. It was at the Tate Modern, and it was this huge retrospective of her. Um, and there was a, um, a, a small day conference beforehand, and the exhibition wasn't open, so I hadn't been able to see it. I didn't know who on earth she was or what she'd done really at all. Her gallery in London, House and Worth, was closed. Um, I managed to see something in what was left of the British uh, Library. It was still a proper museum and had one room. And there were four four pieces, I think it was four, possibly five pieces by Louise with Francis Bacon in the Tate Modern. And the first one I looked at was Amoeba. I don't know if you can see it, but perhaps you can show people. I don't know. But anyway, look at Amoeba. It's everywhere. I hated it. Absolutely yeah. hated it. 
I went on and I liked Villette and I was quite interested by the two other ones. I won't go into them now, but anyway, I hated Amoeba and I thought, what do I do? Because I just hate this. So I thought about what do you do when you hate something? Um, and I spoke about what you at. I had only about 20 minutes in this conference to speak. I talk, talked about what you do when you hate something. And the, the talk went viral. And so that's mm. why I got asked to do more things on Louise Bourgeois. <laughs> so uh, I think when you hate something, it's your own hatred you have to think about. Why do you hate this so much? What is it in, in it that, that makes you hate it? What do you, what is it in you that's free associating to it, that is touching something in you that, that hates it? There's nothing wrong with hating it. Why shouldn't you hate it? We all hate some, some art and some, and we all hate, like and love and hate different bits of art. We don't all like the same thing all the time. It doesn't matter whether you love or hate it. What matters is you think about it and respond to it, that you have an emotional response which you can think with. I, on, on this, uh, against this backdrop, the, I, well, I've been thinking a lot about hate recently. I'm in training at, at, the, at the moment and uh, in some classes, we're reading a lot of Freud and we're talking a lot about the drives and love and hate. And um, it's been interesting to be working with this um, installation and exhibit on the destruction of the father. Uh, which was also in the exhibit and also talked about in your essay pretty explicitly. Um, I, it, it's, it's a pretty liberating thing to be able to hate one's loved objects as well. And I was wondering if you would like to speak a little bit about the destruction of the father, the, in, the installation, the piece of art, uh, what it has to do with psychoanalysis. Uh, what it's meant for you? Well, I think it's about her relationship with her mother as much as with her father, because I think it's through that that she gets into a touch with a, a, a very positive relationship with her mother, um, which she talk, she writes about a lot too, as well as uh, puts into her art, of course, into Maman and all the, the other uh, amazing ones about her mother's clothes and, and her mother's tapestries and what her mother does, etc. And with her siblings too, because though it's the and it, and it also I think subsequently it enables her to change her relationship with her father because they gobble him up basically and laugh about it, um, and that's there as well as I mean in destroying him they. There's a good side to destruction too, which is that uh, you know, as we as I say in the essay, we say to children, "I'm going to gobble you up," and and they think it's very funny and lovely because after all, they've gobbled up their mother, they've gobbled up her milk and and everything, and so gobbling is a sort of is is a love hate relationship, um, not one or the other, it's both, and I think um, that Louise is very good at both emotions, and that's because she's so in touch, as she herself would claim, so much in touch with the unconscious. And, of course, we don't have contradictions in the unconscious. We have things that are identical. They're the same. So love and hate come together. They can happen simultaneously. And I think that's what is going on for, for me. There are other things going on too, and it's been brilliantly written about, but we all take what we 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 associate to it, and for me, it's 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 both. It's the, the, the beauty of it. It's because it's rather beautiful as well. I mean, aesthetically beautiful. That comes from that combination of being funny and laughing and loving at the same time. It's destroying the father. But then <laughs> we we didn't talk about what I was going to talk about uh, when you asked one question way back. I went on to something else, which was her contribution in Passage Dangereux. I think it's her exposure of the female Oedipal complex um, that was very, it's terribly important too. Again, it's something I had thought about differently and found her work just marvellous in relation to what I had been interested by, which was that what the female um, Oedipus complex, we first of all, everybody has a male one in relation to incest with the mother so every every girl has a male uh, a male Oedipus complex, but then on top of that, she's supposed to have this female Oedipus complex, and Louise is just both both funny and both radically revolutionarily 
disposing of it because she looks at it in relation to what effectively is prescribed by the girl's Oedipus complex, and which I think Passage d'Angers is also about. That's about things in much more detail, as Philip has shown very brilliantly, not in this book, elsewhere. Um, but it's as a general theme, it's about what the girl has to do effectively to get her father to seduce her. That the, the girl being, as Freud would put it, already castrated, uh, enters her particular Oedipus complex by the bare girl's one, which is to want the father to want her. So way, lo and behold, the father does seem to want her, or if he doesn't, then he's always playing as Louise's father. So very much did so as a philanderer. He was, like so many men, a philanderer. And so he was always going or always, in her mind, preferring somebody else to herself. So she's, she felt always abandoned by him and that she, nobody could ever love her enough, um, that that was the most personal part of her world, is that she could never get anybody to really love her because basically the father is always both incestuously wanting her but also wanting somebody else more because of the philandering nature of, of ma- masculine sexuality. And yeah, so, I, I think, sorry. Yes. No, no, please. No, go on. Oh, I was. I, I, are you sure you're done? I was no, going to. Please, we'll get there. We'll get where we want to get. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was talking about this moment in your essay with, um, again, with uh, Tracy Morgan, and um, the way that I well, she she suggested I read this essay by Diane Elise. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It was published in Gender and Sexuality in 2000, but it's this essay called uh, "Women and Desire: Why Women May Not Want to Want." Um, are you familiar with this essay? It's ringing bells, but I don't say I'm familiar with it. Okay, so um, so I was thinking about this dangerous passage that, or passage passage dangereux, and uh, your 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 uh, comments on Louis Bourgeois in this this area, and the this idea that um, the Oedipal is different for the woman because she has to, in addition to rejecting the mother or the love object, she has to seduce it, right as well, and. Diana Lee observes that actually the first lost in re- the first loss in rejection for boys, girls, and otherwise actually happens with the mother, and um, it happens at the breast, not with the father. Like the infant's erotic sensuality and desire is first with the mother, and whether it's because of the mother's own homoerotic conflicts, her guilt over incestuous desires, or social conditioning, or what have you. Uh, mothers often can't recognize and appreciate the girl's sexual desire for the mother. And Elise goes on to say that this is universal and that what every woman and person originally wants and is forbidden is their mother. And Freud says this too, right? He says, uh, whereas the boy's desire for the mother is acknowledged and then forbidden, the girl's desire for her mother is never acknowledged and celebrated. It's only erased and negated and repressed. And so feminine sexual desire remains unrecognized uh, and neither the girl or the mother are seen as sexual or sensual objects. And we know that this is like often the case that girls are not gazed at or caressed by the mother as boys are. And on average, uh, boys are, are breastfed much longer than girls are. So there's this rejection of the girl in her sexuality and her incitement, um, excitement, I'm sorry. And uh, Freud says that when she then turns to the father, she stops masturbating. Her sexuality is permanently injured. Her erotic sexuality, previously in motions, brought to a halt. And so women go on looking to find their mother and their husbands. So this whole like heteronormative injunction gets internalized and brings the women's desire to a close. Um, so I'm wondering... Um, against this backdrop, uh, if the Oedipal that Freud talks about is actually a kind of repetition, a kind of castration 2.0 that has to be like endured and suffered. Um, and yet all of the uh, scholarship around Louise Bourgeois points to her Oedipal dynamics with her father. And you write, for example, that the, the psychic untenability of the girl's Oedipal destiny uh, you, you go on to write that uh, what psychoanalysis considers inevitable is in fact the impossible condition of a woman's sexuality under patriarchy. 
I wondered if you would expand on that. Um, much of it um, that you were describing of, of that, that particular essay, uh, Louise does address. She talks about the mother as the first person who abandons her, and that's that the, that's the first abandonment. She talks about how uh, they become women together by wanting to steal, not not wanting to t- not wanting to, to to take, but just both be wanting to steal because the father is always somewhere else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of that is in is is in in uh, Louise's work. Um, a lot of it's around. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with it, but it's not what to me is important. What to me is important is that psychosexual aspect of society, this thing that divides our unconscious from our conscious, our, our preconscious, is the prohibition that you're not allowed. The, those forms of excess sexuality which go under a collective name of incest, you're not allowed those forms of, of killing that goes under the uh, name of murder. You can fight in a war, you can have all sorts of, um, sex, you can, as I say, be a philander, etc., etc. But it's the prohibition, it's not, it's not the desire, it's the prohibition on the desire which creates society. And so what you've got is a situation which is, differs between men and women in which the male, and that, that goes for the girl, the part of the girl that is, is uh, has the same male psycho and same uh, as the boy's male se- sexual case, goes under the prohibition of no incest, no murder. But the girl's prohibition, if, you, if you're looking Oedipally, isn't there. You're not prohibited sex or not prohibited murder with the father or mother. The prohibition is missing. So my work is on, actually, there's an earlier prohibition, which I call the law of the mother. And that's what uh, enables the girl as a sister, not as a mother, but as a sister, to have a prohibition which makes her part of society. So I, I'm interested in a different aspect of it, which, there's, which is missing, I think, in, in that essay. But, and therefore, if you don't put it in, there's, there's some things that are, I mean, they may be uni- universal experiences, but they're not universal requirements or laws. Those are prohibitions against incest. And again, they're the only things that produce, uh, well, with the Oedipus complex, they produce repression. With my law of the mother and the sibling uh, lateral relations, it's earlier defences, it's denial, it's um, depersonalized, it's all sorts of other other resistances, um, earlier ones than the repression. There's some pr- and there's primary repression, not secondary repression, as with the Oedipus complex. So let's call it just primary repression for the moment. Got it. Well, I'm conscious of time right yeah, now. And I so, am too. And <laughs> I think it's probably quite a good place. I, I feel I've said something I'm I'm pleased to have said because <laughs> I think it's very important. <laughs> and I think it's what gets missed out. And thank you very much. It's been very interesting to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being here uh, as a guest on New Books and Psychoanalysis. I am Isaac DeVries. And until next time, uh, this is our show for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Isaac. And thank you very much for the Almodovar reference, which I haven't looked up yet. It sounds wonderful. (laughs) You're welcome. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care. Bye.